This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. feels like we have this conversation a lot it's how do we make news pay for itself and you know good to see that Fairfax staff are back on the job this week after a week-long strike protesting the shedding of another 125 jobs in their business but we're still no closer to finding a solution to the underlying problem facing the age and the Sydney Morning Herald and other dailies which is falling advertising revenues someone who's been around a long time including at the age and crikey and the drum and still with the ABC and editing me engine is journalist and broadcaster Jonathan Green and he's been writing on the business of news for Overland online and it's good to have you with us Jonathan I um I wonder though you know the Fairfax journals are back now it's good to see some yep. good analysis in the paper this morning um but has this strike achieved anything will it change anything I suspect not. I think there's still, um, you know, a lot of people still to go from the Age and, and Sydney Morning Herald. So those those retrenchments and so forth are still going to take place. And the basic problem hasn't been solved. And that's how do you make money in these businesses? <laughs> because journalists are kind of weird. They like to be paid. Mm. Um, and there's no way of doing that unless you have revenue coming in the other side. And... I mean, people make this argument all the time that um, you know we want that we want this this journalism, the stuff that we write, to be valued, and it's a source of revenue. I mean, the problem with that is that it never has been. Um, I mean, back in the day, in the sort of that golden age of, of Fairfax papers, they weren't journalism businesses; they were classified ad businesses. And those classified as by sort of happy accident paid for this really nice journalism, but that wasn't the sort of the primary source of money coming into the business. And now that that advertising has drifted off, uh, it, it, it's it's kind of untangled this, um, this this strange thing that Fairfax had of these two unrelated activities, and it's now being disentangled and it's left one of them sort of sitting high and dry and the one that's left sitting high and dry is the journalism which doesn't make money on its own it attracts an audience to some extent although that's declining too so there's there's yeah, really big problems and I don't, I don't think there's anywhere um a, a solution for that sort of mass newsroom broadcast news outlet kind of thing that we've been blessed with for maybe you know a hundred years or so and yeah i mean you were at fairfax in the sort of i suppose the heyday the 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 the, um the the golden age as you say but were you aware Mm. when you were writing for for the age and working there that that (laughs) it was so entangled like were, were people kind of conscious of it when when i joined uh fairfax it was still in receivership Oh, was it? Um, it was this. This was the sort of ill-fated attempt by Young Warwick Fairfax to do something adventurous with the business structure of Fairfax. It all went pear-shaped. So the building was in the, the, the business was in receivership for quite a while, and it was taken over by various consortia and this long sort of sequence of um, you know people trying to you know, have a go at Fairfax and make something of it began, and that that sort of stretched over a couple of decades. But simultaneous with that was the arrival of the internet um, and a series of... I mean, look, in retrospect, they looked like dumb moves, but 
with with such huge change happening in real time, with people sort of totally not being able to predict the eventual outcomes that we now see, they made what we can now see as some pretty bad decisions. But you know, who was to know then? Um, and and we, I mean, sitting here now too. I mean, in, in ten years' time, this might be an entirely redundant conversation. Um, there may be some sort of happy accident, perhaps through government support, perhaps through individual subscription, perhaps through some other sort of method of valuing this sort of information that starts to pay for real journalism again. But at the moment, that's a really vexed issue, and there's no real model that says this is the way you do it. And I know from, from people I've spoken to in the, the wake of these latest cuts to uh, Fairfax journalist Jonathan that, um, I mean, people are concerned about the quality diminishing and also the, the age, the age that they've known for years that isn't quite what it used to be. And I was thinking about the kind of subscriber user pays model, which, um, of course, the age has implemented and other news organisations have done a similar thing. But to me, it seems to get much more difficult to sustain that when people might not be so um, happy or or joyous about the the quality or the the um, you know the yeah. the amount of news that's coming out of, of publications like the Age that aren't quite what they used to be. Do you think there is a future in in that model? That's a pretty vicious circle, isn't it? I mean, when the quality of a thing goes down and people are obviously less inclined to uh, sign up to it. I mean, and subscriptions in any event, actual sales in any event aren't sufficient to sustain the sort of newsrooms and news businesses that Fairfax are. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of journalists on reasonably good salaries. Um, it's, it's a very expensive thing to run, and it, in it of itself creates no revenue. Uh, so, um, yeah, something, something bold needs to be considered. Now, whether you... I, I suspect what's going to happen... Um, in the maybe shortish term is that there will be real high-end products that offer extremely good information and analysis and, and investigation, but they'll be priced accordingly. Um, I mean, if you look at the sort of money, for example, that the Financial Review charges for a subscription, which is in the hundreds and hundreds of dollars a year, there you begin to see the beginning of sort of cost recovery um, around the price of the, the actual content. If you wanted to price subscriptions around the actual cost of producing those products, they'd be very expensive beasties indeed. Um, and, and maybe that's where this has to end up. And, and maybe there's uh, a model which sees some sort of cross-subsidy uh, from, from government because government recognises that this is an, a fundamental aspect of the healthy running of a liberal democracy. Um, or, or maybe you get the sort of thing which News Corp has, which is sort of the indulgence of, indulgence of a proprietor who sees the worth of having these uh, news outlets because of personal influence, because of their sort of personal ambition for the sort of authority and power that they can wield in the world. And maybe there are other people who might want to do that with an organisation like Fairfax. You know, there are those sorts of possibilities, but there's, at the moment, nothing like that in play and and you you can see what you what you described there that slow diminishment of those papers escalate because if you lose 150 journalism journalists out of fairfax newsrooms then they're not going to be able to sustain even the fairly patchy quality of, of the products they're putting out now
Um, I mean, in, in the energy sector, they call that a death spiral. Um, but I mean, <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the same week that the, the, the Fairfax journals were on strike, we heard the government make some announcements, and it's not specifically about newspapers, but about the, the reach rule that prevents TV broadcasters from reaching 75% of the population, and the two out of three rule that um, restricts companies from owning, um, uh, you know, more than two out of three uh, of the traditional media platforms in a single market. I mean, what what do you see about that move? Is that going to sort of shift shift things around? Well, they're changes which um, are responding to a similar situation in another medium. I mean, broadcast television, as we know, is struggling as well. I mean, who who last watched something at the time that it was broadcast by Channel Nine? You know, everybody now watches their TV content. Uh, at a time that they're choosing, and usually through subscription services, so it's that that sort of broadcast TV thing is starting to shift, and that sort of advertising market there is starting to shift as well. And that's what those changes were in response to, for you know, to let those businesses broaden their uh, their base and, and and perhaps become more viable as a result. It also reflects what's a reality now that. Um, people's diversity of, of, of content isn't necessarily dependent on those local businesses. Um, you know, we can all read the New York Times now. Um, so is it as important to have those sort of diversity rules in this country? Well, people argue not. But that's the other side of the Fairfax argument that we're about to end up quite likely in a, in a, in a country where almost everything is owned by News Corp. <laughs> is that good with the notable exception of the community sector and, and, the, and the public sector with, with you know, broadcasters like Triple R and like the ABC. But otherwise, things are going to fall into less and less hands. And there's a real issue there with the range of views that people get exposed to, the, the range of ideas. So that's, a, you know, that, that, that's another problem. And, and that diversity has, has been dealt a bit of a blow by those changes uh, from the government. Mm. In, in the last couple of weeks. And, but, but, you know, responding to commercial pressures but having the result of diminishing people's access to a, a range of information. And, and when we've seen internationally with the impact of fake news and the type of uh, consequences that mm. can have on democracy and particularly in the US presidential election, and I guess you've been in the, the journalism game for a long time, are you optimistic that we will kind of sort this out and ensure that we have high quality kind of focused journalism that does speak truth to power and, um, you know, keep checks on government and that sort of thing, given that proliferation and, and diversity of voices that are out there and, and available and easily shareable on, on social media and the like? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's never been, this is the other side of the coin, isn't it? There's never been more information. There's never been a time where you can more readily access the truth. Uh, and, and that's a tremendous benefit of this moment in time. You've got to ask yourself, though, um, is that making a difference? I mean, th- that's true, and yet we have Donald Trump. Um, and that's true, and yet we have Donald Trump acting with the sort of contempt that his administration has for what's actually real. I don't think we've kind of seen how this plays out yet, um, and and it's this real sort of tussle between... Um, there are two rival things going on. There's this capacity to seek truth, and then there's this capacity to use uh, the plausibility of media to disseminate fake truth. 
And then there's the the other thing that's going on is this sort of increasing online tribalism and, and people selecting their own sort of realities and the way in which social media and internet makes that possible. So all of this is happening simultaneously and its outcome is, I reckon, incredibly uncertain. Uh, Jonathan Green's with us, uh, ABC broadcaster, editor of Mianjin and a uh, long-time journalist. And he's written a, an article for Overland looking at, at Fairfax and I suppose the business of, of news and newspapers in particular. And, I mean, you do point out in that article, Jonathan, that there's, uh, you know, we've lost from newspapers 14% of our advertising revenues year on year, but that money has gone somewhere and that's basically to Google and to a lesser but still great extent Facebook. So the, the money is still being spent. It's just been spent on in on organisations that don't employ journalists to, to the same degree. Well, the, the organisations that don't actually create their own content. Mm. Um, so ag- aggregation and having that international network is now the way to make money. Um, and, yeah, clearly there's an advantage if you don't have to come up with anything yourself or hire anybody to produce it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty good model, actually. But I, I wonder, I mean, we have, heard, we have heard um, Nick Xenophon kind of muse that maybe, you know, maybe um, news organisations can charge Facebook and Google for publishing mm. their stories. And I, I, is there merit in that? I think, I, I absolutely, I think there could be. And there's no way that they should necessarily get away with this. Um, but, but I mean, we, sh- we shouldn't make the mistake, and we tend to do this, you know, we, we know the world is changing with incredible speed, and all these things are, are utterly in flux. And yet, paradoxically, we, we tend to assume that anything that exists now is the way it's always going to be. And we know damn well it won't be. Um, and, and we know that in, in, in five years there's a chance we won't be having this conversation because everything will have changed and, and those sorts of responses will have been made. I mean, if we, we know the sort of rhetoric that comes out of Rupert Murdoch's corner, for example, about Google. I mean, he, he just describes these organisations as, as pirates. Uh, he, you know, the, his organisation is incensed at the way in which their content gets appropriated by other organisations that then make billions of dollars out of it. So I think that's going to change. And, and the sort of thing that Xenophon suggests, I mean, these are incredibly hard things to police or implement. Um, but I think technologi- technologically we might catch up with, with the means of doing that as well. I mean, this is all very airy-fairy and hypothetical and there seems to be no certainty in this and, and that's only because there isn't. Well, one thing, I mean, with all the fake news discussion and the like, there have been, um, you know, large growth in subscription for the Washington Post and the New York Times mm. in particular. And we've seen the New York Times expand to Australia. And I mean, I, I wonder about your thoughts on that, whether there'll be some uh, daily newspapers that kind of rise to the surface. You know, I think that, that sort of enthusiasm speaks for itself, doesn't it? I mean, people actually want to get a, a, a handle on what's real. Um, and, and are willing to pay for that to happen. Which um, is not to say that, and, and this is still the case, that the New York Times is still a, a business in trouble and the Washington Post is still a business in trouble. Um, the changes that have happened haven't sorted out, uh, you know, the, 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 their business issues and those business issues are similar to the ones that we see here in, in, in Fairfax and that hasn't been resolved. But clearly there is this public desire um, I suspect the, the thing that's possibly going to happen is that truth and, and sound information is going to retreat into a bit of an enclave. 
that it's going to become a thing which is a bit of an exclusive preserve, but it's going to have to be priced in a way that not everybody's going to have access to it. Mm. Uh, and I think that's, in its way, I suppose, reassuring, but in its way, deeply disturbing. Uh, if, if truth becomes something which is um, an elite preserve, then I think we have a bit of a problem as, as a democratic culture. Um, and so that suggests that I think there really is a role in nurturing the fourth estate for um, for government, for people as, as in democracy saying, we actually want to know what's going on uh, and we don't mind putting in our, our equivalent of a Medicare levy to make sure that that happens. Um, and I, I mean, that happens in this country. Don't, you know, don't underestimate how blessed we are in Australia to have the ABC. Uh, imagine living in a media culture where that didn't exist. And that's the reality for most places. You know, that, that's the American reality, that, 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 that there is no large-scale public broadcaster which can compete as an information resource with, with, with private broadcasters. So, you know, that, that's a tremendous advantage in this place. So, in, in a sense, we already have that, that public um, sustenance of the fourth estate in the shape of the ABC. Uh, and maybe that can be extended into other organisations. I mean, I think that's... That's a thing that really needs to be looked at. I think that's a really uh, could be a really important and positive intervention. And I, I, in the absence of sort of commercial solutions to this, I don't see why we should walk away from that. Mm, and uh, I suppose the ABC, as opposed to other news outlets, uh, you know, rates highly as a trusted resource um, source of information. Mm. Even though um, journalists themselves, as you quote, uh, are considered partisan, self-serving, and fundamentally untrustworthy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, people can go and um, read that quote in context in your article on Overland. And uh, thanks so much, Jonathan. Good to have you on Triple R. And it was another big day of footy at Victoria Park yesterday for the second round of the Renegade Pub Football League. It's a friendly competition that pits some of Melbourne's best loved watering holes against each other. If you haven't been down to a game before, before you can uh, expect kind of a bit of a throwback to community footy evolved with a bit of a twist. There's a halftime kick to kick, there's cheap drinks, there's sausage sizzle and uh, good music pumping throughout the day as well. To chat more about it and recap on the weekend scores and tell us a bit about what's coming up for the rest of the year. We've got the president of the Renegade Pub Football League, Luke Tracy, here in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. Cheers, Dylan. Thanks for having me in. So I um, might get a bit of a recap on, on the games yesterday to start with. Who um, who came away with the wins from uh, yesterday? Yep. So there was a few floggings on the weekend, which doesn't normally happen in pub footy. Normally there were sort of two, three goals, a team kicks, but uh, the tote started it off and smashed the pain, the big arch rivals in the pub footy. And then your team, the Easy Beats, came and beat the Corns. Made my debut. Which wasn't too bad. Yep. My uh, sweetheart, Abby, got carried off as best on ground for the Corns, so that sort of <laughs> eased that a little bit. And then the Workers Club came out and beat us, the Bats, in the last game. We haven't had the best start to the year, none and two. Mm. But, uh, no, it was a top day. We had like seven, 800 down there. Um, three bars we run now down at the pub footy. And the barbecue down there is... Uh, we give to a not-for-profit within the area. So in the past, we've sort of taken those takings and used those just to keep the league running and self-sufficient. And now we've got to a stage where things are, are pretty self-sufficient within the league. So, yeah, there was our Melbourne Period Project came down that support women experiencing homelessness. 
and they p- provide like sanitary impacts and products and stuff for them. So they raise fifteen hundred bucks in the weekend, which wow. is awesome. It's great. Yeah, it's all it's all like a really fun day. I've been to watch a few times, but I'm um, finally got on the field for the first time yesterday. But I mean, even I'm recapping on the scores, and there were some some big wins. But it's um it's not really about about winning, is it? No, there's no ladder, there's no finals, anything like that. It's just purely community. Started probably. About 10 years or so ago, um, a fellow named Jensen was running the band booking at the bar open and he was just like, let's just get a few crew together from a couple of different pubs. They rounded up from the tote and it sort of was pretty renegade back then. So they were at Edinburgh (laughs) Gardens or Arden Street and it was pretty much a few beers, having a kick and avoiding the council sort of kicking off on a Sunday afternoon. (laughs) But it's really evolved like particularly over the last sort of two or three years. So I think about four or five years ago, we went to Gill and Oval in West Brunswick and that was great there and it just sort of like everything just got a bit more streamlined and stuff like that and a lot of momentum. But moving to Vic Park last year has just changed. The participation like of females now is huge. Most teams have sort of got 40 or 50 on. Mm. Wow. Um, which is it amazing. feels like it's the, it's the time for that community feel to be back in AFL footy, I reckon. I mean, it, we ha- we saw it around the AFLW that people yep. that, I mean, I'm one of them. I rarely, if ever, go to an AFL men's game, but I was just so happy to go to as many of the women's games as I as I could. And I, I get that sense about pub footy as well, that more people, it's in, people know it's happening, that even though it's been 10 years, maybe people are just starting to hear about it now and heading yeah. along and supporting yeah, definitely. it. And, and it is like, it's a pretty unique league it's the only league in the country that's mixed male and female contact um first and third quarters females are in the ruck um and then boys back in the ruck second and fourth there's minimum of six women on the ground at all times with the hope to even increase that with more participation um it's just it's got a lot of momentum and moving to vic park being around a lot of the, the pubs within the league and now on a Saturday as well means it's a bit of a, a party afterwards. People head to the Yarra, the closest pub, and then off to the Tote, the old bar, mm. our little bar, Crazy Arms, at the back of Polyester Records, wherever. And it's that sense now where people are getting to know each other in the other teams a lot more. So, yeah, I mean, it's just it's such an amazing league. I mean, where do you get to go on a Saturday afternoon? You've got strangers like you doing the weekend yelling out your name in a positive way, you know, <laughs> running around the field. <laughs> can be a bit scary, but you know, <laughs> yep. taking the most right. Is there a good age range of people? Yeah, definitely. So it's 20s, 30s, 40s, and there's definitely a handful in their early 50s still playing. And I guess it's like for a lot of people that played maybe a bit of footy or sport at school and stuff, and then they've just gone down a different avenue in life and not really kept that going, it's really flexible. Mm. So you don't need to train every week, like on a Tuesday night or anything like that. Obviously, the more you train, the more game time you're going to get and participate like that. But it's very flexible. The games are every sort of three, four weeks apart. So plenty, plenty of time, of time. to recover. <laughs> Definitely plenty of time <laughs> to do that. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's really – it's just – it's really – Great. Yeah, I love how um, kind of old VFL grounds are used as well at Victoria Park, of course. And as a Collingwood fan, I love heading down there anytime I can and, and seeing games and the community cups there this year as well. But um, a team that I train with have trained sort of at Arden Street before, where, of course, North Melbourne's home ground. So yep. it's great to see those grounds given kind of a new lease on life and being used for, I don't know, in the kind of the community spirit that, that football was when it was just kind of the VFL and was not fully professionalised yet. Yeah, it wasn't as commercial, you know, it was more about going to those suburban grounds and having a beer on the hill and enjoying the footy. And, um, yeah, for us to be able to get access to 
grounds like that, Arden Street and Vic Park to play the games, and so it's huge. Mm. So it's really helped out the league. And so this is your first year as president, the first year at the helm. Why did um why did you want to kind of get involved at that higher level? Um, I just I don't mind organising stuff, and a lot of people <laughs> don't like doing that. And I'm passionate about community. I mean, when you put together music, footy, and and a community of amazing people, I mean, it's pretty much like playing footy at Meredith Golden Plains. There's a mm. no dickhead policy. Everyone's on board with it, respectful, inclusive. And Banjo had been running it for about seven or eight years. And the, the, the old, largely the old board had done a lot of work to get where we are now. I mean, it was quite loose with insurances and... Paramount I was actually going to ask going to ask about that, you know, membership of of the the um, Ambos and that sort of thing. So you've got that. Yeah, we encourage the players to get that themselves, but we've got a trained medic down at the grounds now, uh, and there's definitely a few injuries in pub footy, so that's <laughs> pretty handy to have. Um, and I just I enjoy the the community spirit that it brings for everybody. Like there's there's so many amazing stories out of pub footy. And back in the day, it was like, if you've got a broken heart, come down. Don't be sitting around on a Sunday afternoon. Come down for a kick in a beer at Arden Street or at Edinburgh Gardens or whatever. Meet some new crew and everyone's positive. Mm. And I remember going to one of our – we had a warehouse party for one of our end-of-year parties a couple of years ago. And me and a friend were standing there. We looked around and there was probably 10 or 12 people. We had no idea what they did for a job. We'd hung around them for like, you know, for three years mm. on weekends. It's just that. It's just a great – positive environment for people so to be able to have that opportunity to help just push that further along keep it renegade keep it how it is but now to be able to put back some of this money back in the community to not-for-profits and stuff like that is an awesome opportunity to be able to have and and it's true that one of the teams represents a pub that doesn't exist anymore so you've got that sort of that element to it as well that it's um an historic competition that you kind of you know the the legacy of those old watering holes that are kind of closing down for various reasons yeah, is yeah, still definitely. represented in the competition yeah for sure like it's amazing a mixed range of different pubs that are in it now and having the old store what like the tote you know still there is awesome it's just a, yeah it's a good wide range of pubs yeah and the tote are the team to beat aren't they every year well in my role i probably shouldn't be saying that but it's <laughs> always good to see the tote get beaten uh and they did in round one they did but um the labor couldn't get up on the weekend they wear the collingwood colors too don't they <laughs> they do yeah they do, yep. they do yep. and they're pretty good they, they sort of didn't lose a game for about three years <laughs> so when they lose, lost one that that was a, a minor celebration for everyone. Yeah. They bounce back though, so, you know. They do, definitely. <laughs> so how do you actually choose a team, Dylan? Like, how did you choose Me? who to play with? Like, um, do you, do you, can you just choose or do you actually have to kind of be bending your elbow at that particular bar? Or uh, Well, for me, it was a bit of both. I knew a couple of people at the Easy Beats and, um, I mean, I'd, I'd heard that the Tote had a pretty um, full roster of people as well. And, and, I mean, I know people who play for a bunch of different teams, but in that case, I just went to training and kept going to training. And if you do that enough, you'll play on the day. So, but it's great because I mean I've found the same thing. I knew a couple of people at that team, but then you hang around them week to week, and you kind of make a whole new network of, of friends, which is a really great thing. Definitely. As well. And back in the day, most of the recruiting was done after midnight in Fitzroy <laughs> yeah. and Collingwood. You're at a pub, yeah, and then someone hears something. I can play footy. I'll do yeah. it. <laughs> About thirty percent of those people would follow through and rock up to 
training the next afternoon. <laughs> but you know, that's where that's where it sort of stems a lot of it from. So, um, given that it's kind of grown and become more streamlined over the years, is there a challenge at all with um, you know making sure that you, everyone who wants to play can play and that people aren't sort of missing out? Or is there a challenge around that? Yep, hoping you weren't going to ask that question, <laughs> but it's it's a tricky one because back in the day, uh, at Gillen Oval, there was probably 60, 70 people and 20 dogs there watching it. And now to have, you know, the last round last year, Grand Final Eve, there was two, 3,000 people down there. And that was a lot of takings in the bar, which then allows us to be able to put that money back in the community, like I was saying. With that, <laughs> there's a lot of momentum. So there's eight teams now that back in the day you were scrounging around on a Sunday trying to go, Dylan, I need you to play. We've only got one or two on the bench. Now there's, yeah, 40, 50 people in each team. So remaining inclusive but, you know, not 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 wanting to cap it is definitely a tricky thing. Mm. Always each year, but the start of the year, it's a bit warmer and September is always a good time. So you see who's actually core and real to it in their cold July, August <laughs> months. That's right, yeah. And, and, I mean, you can always head down and kick to kick at halftime and stuff. So totally. you feel like you're excluded if you, you know, if you don't get a run with the team. Yeah, and we're just encouraging everyone at the moment for the teams that, our capacities come to training on a Sunday. Like most clubs have training, they'll get a couple of slabs, they'll have a scratchy match between them, and it's awesome. And mm. then over a couple of you know months or so, and if you can get a run for a quarter or two, ever the coaches and everyone will make that happen. So that's what we're sort of encouraging. With are are you likely to expand it, Luke? We should say Luke Tracy's with us, president of the Renegade Pub Footy League, and we're talking all about that um, particular football league, which is growing and um, and becoming, you know, more enjoyable, more successful for everybody involved. And I, uh, yeah, are, are you likely to go beyond eight teams? Well, we've got the next round is June tenth, and it's under lights, which we've been lucky to get from Vic Park. So. The first game is going to be a surprise game between a couple of other pubs. Just going to announce that later this week. It's like a pre-game. Yep, that'll, that'll be at two thirty, and then double the, header. Well, yes, four games. Gouge is playing some velvet, and uh, Labor taking on us the bats, and the Corns are playing the Lomans. So that'll sort of go through till about eight thirty at night, and that's what we did last year in the second last round. It was just amazing to be able to play at Vic Park under lights, try and kick a. A goal out of the corner at like Dacos is like a dream for <laughs> a lot dream. of people. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's no there's no plan yet to expand the league with another team or two, but we'll be watching that during the year. So June uh, June ten is the next one under lights at Victoria Park. That's a Saturday night, and you can um, I think head to the Facebook page and there's a fixture up, and it's in yep. like Beat Magazine, and yep. any of those pubs tend to have the fixture up on their wall as well. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, that should be good. Yeah, well, um, thanks heaps for coming in and uh, we'll catch you next time. No worries, thanks guys. And will housing become more affordable as a result of the federal budget? In the weeks since the budget, it's still unclear how proposed housing affordability changes can improve the lot of the homeless, renters or first home buyers locked out of the housing market. Uh, the government has tinkered around the edges of capital gains tax and negative gearing. It's announced tax incentives to invest in affordable housing and has moved to allow younger and older people to use their superannuation accounts to save or downsize, uh, among other things. But, um, you know, as a package, will it work? And to look at this in some detail, we've asked Dr Kate Shaw to speak with us. She's with the University of Melbourne and a future fellow in urban geography and planning. And it's great to have you on the program, Kate. Uh, welcome to Triple R. And I suppose it's really easy to get kind of down into the detail when we talk housing. But overall, what was your sense about the budget and its uh, housing affordability measures? Will we will we see some more affordable housing on offer? 
Uh, well, morning, Tony. Um, uh, the short answer is no. Uh, there's, there's, there's pretty much no way that the um, the government's measures are actually going to increase housing affordability or reduce prices. In fact, it'll be the opposite. Um, the the idea of being able to um, use a, a sort of a special fund is actually above and beyond the super. Uh, there was this suggestion of actually being able to withdraw your super for housing, which is, I think, a very, very bad idea uh, <clears throat> because pensions aren't going to be around for that much longer. And if you're dipping into your pension now to buy a house, you can find yourself in, you know, <clears throat> in fairly deep trouble down the track. Um, but what they've actually offered is, is a... Um, an account sort of above and beyond your superannuation fund um, with a, a tax um, discount, which is kind of quite a nice way of encouraging saving um, and and certainly you're paying less tax on your, on your savings, you know, contributions into that account than you would be if you had just a normal sort of bank saving account. Um, but it's not going to reduce the impact on the prices of housing. It just means that there's going to be a, a few more slightly more cashed up people, um, you know, bidding in the market. And what about the, the use of a similar type scheme within superannuation to enable people to downsize? What, how's that for a concept? Because I know that's one issue that people have found that downsizing um, maybe not, might not pay off for them, but we want, you know, larger houses for larger groups of people to live in rather than a single person. But, I mean, I've, I've read criticism of that policy in that people want to downsize into the area that they live in and there's not really enough smaller houses in those areas for them to move to. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, I mean, look, that, that, that could work um, if there were more um, smaller units in those areas where there are traditionally big homes. But, of course, you know, I mean, really we're talking about the middle suburbs there, aren't we, which are the most sort of fiercely defended um, by the very people who are living in those big homes. <laughs> they, they, they object to units being um, built on the on the property next door. Um, so that, that, that's, that's a tricky one to to work out. But even then, that's an initiative that is certainly going to encourage um, people cu- currently living in big houses. You know, they might be uh, they're asset rich, they might be income poor, uh, and so there is a very good incentive there for them to sell their house and, and, and if they can, move into something smaller and free up their larger home for, for yeah, larger groups of people indeed. But even then, the tax incentive to people to sell those, you know, the, the, the family home, is still, it's still going to people who are relatively privileged, to people who actually own their house. Um, so, and, 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 yeah, I mean, it, it, it's still not a redistribution of wealth <laughs> uh, in, in any measure at all, and it's not going to have any effect on housing affordability. It will just free up some big homes with not too much penalty to the people who are selling them. And I mean, one reason that's been given for the the squeeze in housing affordability um, in Melbourne and also across Australia more broadly is uh, foreign investors kind of speculating on property, having apartments in the city that sit vacant for for a significant portion of the year. And one new policy measure that the government announced as part of its budget was to slug uh, foreign investors $5,000, as I understand it, uh, if they have a place that's vacant for at least six months of the year. Would that have any impact on foreign investors as um, kind of speculating on the housing market and, and in turn driving up prices, or would that simply be factored into their budget when they're thinking about buying property in Australia? 
it's a very interesting question. Uh, I should I should say it's not just foreign investors. Um, it, it, I mean, there is certainly um, massive pressure on on housing affordability because of investors generally. Um, there are foreign investors, indeed, uh, from all over the world. Uh, it's not just the most visible uh, ones. Um, and and there, there is also a great deal of pressure from local investors who are taking advantage of the tax incentives, such as negative gearing and, and, and the discount on capital gains tax when they sell. So there's a huge investor pressure on the market. Now, the um, measure to tax uh, the owners of empty properties this is a very good one. I'm a bit puzzled as to why that should just be foreign investors. It should be the case for local investors as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, there should be a tax on empty properties. Um, the, the problem here is how do you identify them? We don't actually have any way of knowing where the properties are empty on a long-term basis and it's and it's and it's a very it's a very it's a very tricky one to measure uh, so it, it probably needs to be handled at the local government level um but the government hasn't come out the federal government hasn't come out with any uh way of sort of documenting it and it's actually becoming quite problematic i mean all we've got is estimates so there's a think tank in um in in, uh, in melbourne called prosper australia uh which kind of does estimates. It goes out um, to places like Docklands and South Bank um, and looks at water records, uh, looks at water use, um, and then can make some kind of estimate on how many places are just obviously not occupied very much. In Canada, where uh, there's a very sort of similar uh, issue, people go out and actually have a look at um, electricity use. Um, they can either get access to the records or they actually just go out and have a look at <laughs> whether the lights are on in, in, in these, you know, sort of massive, tall, you know, high-rise um, apartment complexes. But even then, it, 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 it's not categorical. And what people are finding now is <laughs> that um, lights and water usage can be sort of set on electronic. You just have the lights set say on electronic. A smart technology, Sorry? smart technologies can enable that to be programmed in advance, and and exactly. uh, and also and with people can... saving water and energy as well. So energy efficient households. Right. <laughs> so it's 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 sort of, it's actually quite a conundrum, and and um, the most interesting attempt at fixing this is actually in Germany, um, where where there are quite hefty penalties thrown at um, at, at the owners of empty properties. And the way that they do it is actually by neighbours saying that, you know, tell, telling the local government that, that um, the property is empty, which is pretty weird given Berlin's sort of history of well, governing neighbours and the role of the Stasi big, and the... Yeah. And how big a problem going, is it, oh. Kate, how, how, big a problem, how big a problem is it estimated to be in Melbourne? I mean, I know I've heard about this before as an issue and I imagine some houses are legitimately empty if someone is very sick or whatever it might be that they're, yeah, well, they're not able to be there. Six months or, yeah, whatever, yeah. Well, look, it's, as I say, it's very hard to, hard to, hard to know, but the, most of the estimates in Melbourne um, are sort of between 15 and 25% of properties are left empty and probably much higher than that in places like South Bank and Docklands and CBD.
And um, we're speaking with Dr Kate Shaw. She's with the University of Melbourne. We're talking housing affordability and some of the, the measures that were, were called a package in the in the federal government's uh, recent budget that was handed down. And one thing that was criticised, uh, the, the government was criticised for, Kate, was that it didn't do enough on capital gains tax and also negative gearing. There's a few things in there, but uh, is this something do you, you think they will move on in the future potentially? And will, will that make a big difference if, if um, there are changes in that area? Mm. Well, this 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 package hasn't um, ha- ha- hasn't changed much at all. I mean, basically, the only thing that they've changed is some of the things that you can claim when you're negative gearing a property. So, I mean, for your listeners, I mean, ne- negative gearing gets a lot of talk is, is getting talked about a lot these days. And, and <clears throat> basically, what it means is that you can claim your um, you can deduct your expenses uh, against your tax in- uh, like against your in- income uh, for the maintenance of um, an investment property. Uh, so your mortgage repayments, you know, sort of cleaning and maintenance, um, anything that falls below the uh, amount of rent that we can claim as a deduction. So the government has done things like, all right, um, saying it's been completely utterly watered, this system. I mean, you know, people are making all sorts of ludicrous claims against their properties. Um, so, so it, yeah, I mean... It, Limiting the deductions is is um, you know a reasonable thing, but it's not really going to have a major impact on it. And, and and the fact is that the combination of negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount on sale are major major incentives for people to invest in the property market. And that's where the I mean that that, that really compounds the problem of affordability because first home owners are um, um, first home buyers are competing against property investors. We've got all of them. And we're talking mainly about buying a home and, and owning your own home, but of course many people, in fact more and more people, are renting on a long-term basis. And I know here in Victoria there's been an ongoing review of the Residential Tenancies Act. Is there anything uh, in that space in terms of shoring up uh, houses and, and apartments for long-term lease at an affordable price and, and in a more secure way that could make that, I guess, a more viable option here in Australia than it has been up until now? Yeah. It, ha- it has to work on two levels. It has it has to work on the level of um, of, of, of supply of, of having enough rental properties available um, and having enough kind of long term investors in the market who are actually in it for the long haul. <clears throat> We're not in it for the for the capital gains for the, and, and, and not encouraging that churn in the housing market of just buying and selling and throwing out you know whatever tenants are in there at all, at all times if we had if, if we had that kind of situation with 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 long-term secure ownership of rental properties then you would couple that with tenancy protections such as long-term leases such as also um not being able to evict tenants just because you want to sell with vacant possession. I mean, in Germany, that's illegal. When you want to sell a property, you have to sell it with a tenant in place. Um, so the coupling together of those two things, you know, of, of long-term investors in the property market and of secure tenancy protections would go a long way to keeping prices stable and giving um, giving renters a, a, a genuinely serious option of, of, of secure housing without having to um, fight to buy. And um, just to be clear, we're a long way from that. 
We're miles away from miles that. away from it. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining us on Triple R this morning. No, you're welcome. And so um, really no good news there for housing affordability. Dr Kate Shaw, uh, she's with the University of Melbourne's Urban Geography and Planning Area. She's a future fellow there and uh, talking about some of those affordability measures in the federal budget for housing and uh, looks like there'll still be high rent and then house, high house prices um, for the short term at least. Good times. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.